0: welcome to scholars in spotlight today we have melissa story she's returning for the second podcast in this series um we have recorded this conversation in two parts And Melissa is a transdisciplinary design scientist and also complex system theorist. If you would listen to her first podcast, you'll notice that one of her main interests is that how to help humanity to build a better world. And in this conversation, you'll especially notice that she's been pulling strings from different disciplines to answer various different questions which I was asking. Above all, She's a lovely person to talk to and ask these kind of questions. So without further ado, let's welcome Les Steri. So you are in France.
1: I'm in France, yes. I'm in Southwest France.
0: Okay. I, also, I, I imagine because you are a designer... Uh, I imagine your house would be uh, like a treat to actually visit. so <laughs> it, it might be really eccentric kind of uh, really weird architect's house. Am I correct or
1: no, I have my my taste is very it's not minimalist, but um it is streamlined, as it were. but there are a lot of I have a lot of natural artifacts, so I have created uh, well I've collected a number of specimens that relate to my work, and so I have you know my family joke that it's like walking into the natural history museum. <laughs> uh, so yeah there are there are a lot of specimens, which is mainly because well, firstly, obviously they're useful from a scientific perspective it's It's, it's good to have the things that I am most interested in to hand, but also because uh sourcing of images uh of the the various samples can actually be quite tricky and you know some of the um imagery that is out there I'm not always happy with the aesthetics so in having my own it's it's obviously not quite as large as the <laughs> natural history museum or indeed um you know um many many other collections but uh I have what I need and so yeah there are, there are lots of little bits of the natural world uh scattered around the house and outside we're in a highly biodiverse area And so, you know, I look out pretty much every day. I look out and I will see something interesting going on. And certainly if I take a walk um, and, you know, inspect the, uh, we have a meadow, if I inspect the meadow, then I find all sorts of interesting bugs and flora and things going on. And um, I actually have a nature journal that I log down, the species I find and what they're doing and so forth. So yeah, it's, uh, I walk my nature talk, as it were. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: So, Melissa, last time we uh, had a podcast in between the event, Future Cities event, if I'm correct. That's um, right.
1: Yeah. yeah. In,
0: in London. And that's that's a brilliant intro. If someone, you know, want to go back and listen a little bit about um, some of the aspects of your research and what your visions are around cities and our relationship with the environment Uh, but what is your view on uh, like nature in lockdown right now how we are seeing that our relationship with the natural environment is probably maybe changing or evolving or we are understanding it a little bit better
1: it's an incredibly interesting period on, on many levels, because what this pandemic does is it illuminates the effectively the shortcomings, the problems within and of our current relations with the natural world. So at the most basic of levels, of course, while we know not quite what the origin of this particular virus is, and obviously there are various theories, and personally I think the probability that this came from obviously we we know it came from wild species um but the probability that it effectively came to uh you know into our world as it were through the sort of processes that were actually very well portrayed in the film contagion and that have been discussed in various best selling books by a number of etymologists and um journalists that have that have studied the fields that being that effectively we Uh, You know, we're encroaching on the natural world. We are for various reasons, be it poaching or wildlife trafficking um, or logging or simply, you know, carving roads and transport networks through virgin habitats or other. You know, we are increasingly encroaching on the natural world. And because of that, we're coming into contact with more and more viruses. And I think that that is most likely the route that this particular Virus came along, but um, you know what it has highlighted is not just the problem there, but also the fact that more generally, we are, um, you know, we're, we're keeping livestock, for example, in the factory farms, and we are, um, you know, we are distributing livestock, so for example, in the wet markets, in ways that are very, very high risk to us as a species and of course in turn to other species and that these processes are reducing biodiversity, they are causing immense stress to ecological systems and of course they are deeply unethical and so a a big light has been shone on that. Also of course another really sad aspect of this development is that we have seen that deforestation is up by 65% in the Amazon so far, and that is because, uh, you know, unscrupulous persons are taking advantage of the fact that the monitoring systems are uh, not, uh, some some aspects of those monitoring systems are not in play. The manpower on the ground that actually uh, effectively implement the checks and the measures to try and keep de- deforestation down. Um, we also today at, well actually this week we 've seen a report come out that sh- has shown raptor killings illegal raptor killings of peregrines and f- kites and various other species in the u k are up, and of course, we also see that poaching of uh, rhino and the big the big um, five uh, amongst other species in Africa is also up so this has also shone a light on the fact that for all the communications for all the data for all the in understanding within and of and beyond the scientific community that we really have to uh you know protect biodiversity and protect species there are they that given half a chance will exploit any disaster or any or any disruption to society but again juxtaposed against that there is actually something very good and Heartwarming, and that is the fact that whereas it has been species that have been contained, be that because we've been essentially um, we've been turning uh, systems, we've been turning biomes that have been interconnected into islands, wherein species have been locked into ever uh, decreasing circles of land. Or uh, within of our towns and cities, where some of our behaviors are actually inhibiting to other species, be it the extent of the noise pollution or the light pollution or the just general activity of humans, um, that has been reversed, wherein now it is not the species that are so much contained, but it is us and The term I would give this is the human zoo, and that has brought about some very interesting developments. Um, which is some—it's somewhat difficult to actually quantify at the moment because, of course, as with so many other facets of the online environment, there's lots of fake news. So, for example, you know the dolphins swimming in the canals of Venice—that <laughs> uh, has been debunked—and doubtless there will be—you know there, there's a lot of footage that is bouncing around that has no—it um, has no source of origin, let alone you know date, place, uh, or really anything that can actually substantiate the credibility of the footage um now again there's there's a little bit of sad aspect on that in that actually to protect a lot of wildlife you do actually need to obscure uh, you know to obscure the source of the origin so it's it's often important particularly if it's a um a relatively rare species or a species that is vulnerable to um human activity you you know you, you you don't want to be too precise about quite where you saw that species and when and so forth because obviously many species are very uh they're very habitual, they're very um, repetitive in their, in their behaviour. And so, um, you know, if, if you reveal the location and the time and so forth, you could actually be exposing the species to danger. But nonetheless, um, the anecdotal evidence, or not anecdotal evidence, but the anecdotal uh, data, as it were, um, suggests that some really interesting things are occurring in terms of animal behaviour in the built environment in towns and cities uh, interface there with, uh, you know, in that I have friends in the suburbs that are reporting us have many others that deer and other species are aggregating in greater numbers. They're being seen a little bit more often than they have for many years. So it is interesting. And the value in that will be variable, obviously, depending first of all on how well we quantify what has actually happened Um, and of course, with that, it will very much depend on people in that, on the one hand, we're hearing a lot of, uh, individuals say, oh, you know, goodness, well, being locked inside has made me realize how, you know, how much I value the outdoors and how much I appreciate nature. But then the flip side of that is that human memory can actually be very short and there is the possibility, the very real possibility that, you know, if a vaccine is developed and if treatments and so forth come into being uh, that effectively enable us to go back to living more or less as was, people could actually revert to precisely the same sort of behaviours and we could not merely see um, the non-human life as it were, see fauna retracting back to the places where it had effectively it enclaved itself prior to the outbreak but we could actually see um, yet a, a worse situation still wherein for example animals that in the lockdown period that you know across a period of months have become used to populating human environments they've been used you know they've, they've gotten used to coming into our towns or our cities are then exposed to danger because of course, the life cycles of these species are sometimes really very short. So, with you know, if this lockdown or you know the disruption to human uh, or to built environments lasts for sake of argument nine months, well, that is long enough for some species to have you know been born to have effectively become uh, adult within and off you know uh, their their you know their life term, and thereon to really know nothing else other than. Uh, what they witnessed in the lockdown and of course species will adapt their behaviors to what they uh, to the environments that they are used to and so there are some dangers as well um, mm-hmm. but the crux of it is that yes this this is shining a light on the worst and the best of humanity and all the problems but also all the possibilities of um, our future relationship with the natural world.
0: Yeah I mean it, it reminds me uh, when you were talking about that humans forget it's uh, from british uh, i think he's a journalist and a, a writer graham hancock he writes about ancient civilizations that he says that mm. species, humans uh, is a species with amnesia i mean as a species we mm. have amnesia we just keep on forgetting our past and mm. we may that's one of the reasons why we kind of go back to the same patterns uh other than that actually um it, you you know how you mentioned that humans are now being locked as they were somehow doing it to the other species. It's mm. like uh, terraforming, uh, you know, how terraforming came mm. from science fiction slowly mm. with Carl Sagan writing in 60s and 70s about, uh, you know, somehow speculative speculatively traveling in the space in some sort of a real way and then in the, in the sci-fi you can see that how uh with the war of the world one of the first times it was some other people coming so so mm-hmm. that that uh, imperialist colonialistic aspect of transforming like the the even in the fantasy the urge is strong to even transform all the other planets, or the planet mm. they encounter, according to the human need. But then mm. in that story, you know, the Mar- Martians came and they were, of course, doing this to us. Mm. Uh, but, 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 so, H-
1: H.G. Wells, um, yeah, he, he was quite uh, Mars comes up a lot in, in H.G. Wells' yeah. writing which um is partly because of course at that time you know um astronomy was really and, and uh, you know uh, studies of space in general were really starting to take off but there were still many unknowns and so their idea as to you know an hg wells idea as to quite what could be happening on mars was uh, uh well seemingly today would seem rather ridiculous in right. that um you know, he uh, and, and indeed many of his time thought that you know there could very well be macro life on on Mars as as here on Earth. But actually, you know H. G. Wells, his work's very interesting because he he effectively creates uh, layers within his works, and so you can read in H. G. Wells' uh, story, particularly the novellas and the longer works, on not one but on on several levels. And they were very, very much influenced by the work of Darwin and the advent of um, the theory of evolution. And the the War of the Worlds is is very much influenced by, of course, the fact that understanding the microbiology and Mm. of that which had not been seen. Effectively, you know, H.G. Wells realised that this new frontier of of, uh, human understanding was in Um, recognizing that which we simply had not been aware of, or at least not formally aware of um, in that, you know, when you look back through ancient literature, you see all sorts of references to phenomena that suggests that um, there there was in fact a a, a much deeper awareness, but yes, uh, that awareness was potentially forgotten. But um, yeah, the War of the Worlds is, it is like many of HG Wells' books, very, very interesting to read, but um, in effect, the the theatre, which is what he's really creating in that work, is yes, it's it's set in a uh, scientific, in a virtual world, in a, in a sort of avatar scenario, wherein um, you know it is somehow deemed to be apart from the or, or his present world, the so the era in which he was writing. But in actual fact, there are a lot of references to what was going on. So the the line between reality and fiction is somewhat thin and it's obscured by the fact that you know as do many writers he was in effect cloaking um uh, ideas in fairly thinly disguised uh form you know in that in that he was uh, you know yeah. the, the martians the the uh you know they of course that was speaking to a microbiological threat and you know, that the notion of that was very much linked into the real events um and to, and indeed to pandemics that had, that had passed through and that he would have been aware of.
0: Yeah. So, so you, Melissa, so you talks about, well, your work actually addresses a lot of uh, what is the relationship between human systems and this highly complex earth. So, I mean, th- so you're the perfect person to ask these questions and that's, I just wanted to throw it in so that um, what conversation we had, it it has a context to it. But you mentioned uh, in one of your, um, in in your thesis about integrating fire. So I Hmm. actually, I want to come back to the relationship between human systems and earth and what your, uh, what is your view on Gaia hypothesis. But I want to start from how, like from one unit. So let's say, you know, integrating fire. How, how do you see it?
1: Well, fire is it to understand fire. Firstly, earth is the only planet in the solar system uh, that has fire as such in that though one finds fiery phenomena on other planets, fire is of course, a product of the burning of biomass of, of basically carbon based um, uh, materials. In other words, Uh, fire cannot exist without life the advent of fire on earth is integral to the advent of life In that when one traces back the evolution of life on earth one finds that fire came into that story very early on Um, and you know essentially I mean when we look back through the ages of course we we have a pretty accurate record of the um, way in which fire has manifested both in terms of its geographic uh, spread across the continents and across, um, yeah, and, and in terms of its intensity. So the reason for that is that fire is recorded in, in the fossil record um, in that, you know, we have uh, this particular uh, class of fossil, uh, which is, is uh, the FUSAIN record, and it's effectively, it's charcoal to all intents and purposes, um, the charcoal record. And so we know that the, the uh, relationship between fire and plant life is one of coevolution. It is one of coexistence, and to the extent that some species, and indeed many um, extant species, many of the species that remain here today, are—they're not just—they're um, not—they don't just live with fire, but their reproductive processes are wholly dependent on fire, and that. Um quality that feature that functional trait within their um, their uh, behavior it is it stems right back to the origin of that species and interestingly um though obviously you know the fundamental theory of of evolution is that species adapt and therefore the species that are living today are you know, have to an extent adapted to what in effect are lower uh, intensities, lower typical intensities and frequencies of fire than at some previous points in the uh, than in, in the record of life on Earth and in the history of life on Earth. So, for example, if we go back to the Carboniferous period, um, the gaseous composition of the atmosphere was different in that there was more oxygen, which in turn made... Um, the probability of combustion higher and with that there was a lot of plant matter there was there was a lot of fuel to, to use the term that you would in the fire sciences and fires were raging and they were raging at intensities and at scales that it would be actually quite difficult for us to picture today and to give an idea of the extent to which they were raging whereas today we think of a blue sky Um, And we used to blue skies because uh, essentially the uh, particulates in our atmosphere are, you know, we we have uh, less particulate matter in our atmosphere. And so effectively, um, you know, we have a a clearer atmosphere. Um, In in the Carboniferous period, we would not have seen blue skies. We would have seen skies that were um, that, you know, they were tinged with reds, with oranges and with other colours which were obviously a consequence of the fact that light was refracting off all these many particulate, uh, all, all the many particles in the atmosphere from these constantly burning, raging fires. And so, you know, fire is, it is um, very much, it is one of the, along with water, you know, this is not just the blue planet, it, it is the fiery planet. And that fundamental facet is not very well understood uh, within many um, within many communities. That it's it's become somewhat lost. Now I say within many communities because there was a time, there was a, a an ancient time when fire was very well understood by humans and indeed by our closest cousins, and not you know back by one as it were. Um, evolutionary generation, one species, one other species of um of human, but of a number. And again, you know, this is not, this is not hypothesis, this is this is evidenced by both um, anthropological and archaeological, and indeed biological uh, data, in that you know, this is actually written into our DNA. We have certain adaptions as a species that are not found in even our closest um, relatives within the chimpanzees. And fire is so fundamental to our development as a species that were it not for fire and more specifically for our uh, control of fire, this being something that, you know, as I said, it dates back throughout not merely the entirety of the human lineage, but prior to that, we would not exist. Hmm. And when I say we would not exist, our lineage would not exist. So we wouldn't be here. But fire over the epochs, over the you know, ages of human civilization has become increasingly invisible in the minds of the many. And of course, part of that is to do with the fact, or indeed a large part of that is to do with the fact that in many cultures, and particularly the West, fire though, it undermines our society and every facet of it. And that obviously we are an industrialized, um, we, are, we are a species that is reliant on technology. And that is reliant on all of the processes that fire facilitates. So for example, obviously fire facilitates chemistry, fire facilitates the extraction and the modification of many materials. We would not be speaking now, were it not for um, those many processes, uh, enabling the creation of the the technology of the the laptops and of the servers and of all the other things that are enabling us to speak right now. you know, we would not have this without fire. But fire is, as I said, is a very misunderstood uh, phenomena. It is a very demonized phenomena. And in environments, um, many have in effect forgotten fire's role. And so theirs is not the awareness that there are species that are adapted to fire, species that would go extinct in its absence. Theirs is not the awareness that with regard to to our management of fire, we do have options. We do have different ways in which we can work with fire. But at the end of the day, you know, I was speaking to the carboniferous. I was speaking to there being previous periods in which fire's behaviour was in many ways much more uh, dangerous than it is today. I mean, yes, you know, we have big wildfire events, but um, you know, the point that I'm making here is that. Yes, we have a certain degree of control over fire, but that, the extent of that uh, control is limited. And it is essentially limited, obviously, yes, to the gaseous comp- composition of the atmosphere, although that, in the scheme of things, isn't going to change anytime soon. It is also very much impacted by temperature and by humidity, which, needless to say, at a time of climate change are changing. And that is a major contributing factor to obviously the fact that wildfires are now becoming more prevalent and they are becoming uh, more frequent in some areas. And in other areas, you know, they are not merely becoming more rather more frequent, they're becoming more intense. Um, so the the uh, manifestation of fire on Earth is changing. We have a very big part to play in that. And then there are all sorts of things that we are doing Um And I've discussed them in detail in the thesis, but there are all sorts of things that we are doing that are yet further disrupting what are technically the current fire regime. So the typical behaviours of fire in the environment that have been prevalent within the Holocene, they are now shifting. And so really the the thesis at its heart is drawing attention to the fact that there is this legacy and that um, fire is fundamental to not merely our own existence but to that of all life on on earth or all terrestrial and uh, not terrestrial life all land life on earth rather um and that we have choices to make we have decisions to make and how and why we make them will obviously be very much a product of our understanding of the world about us and that of course comes down to uh many many factors but amongst others it comes down to our Understanding of um, how and why we think the way that we do. And so, another major facet of the thesis is looking to how other peoples think about fire, and not just ancient peoples from across many different cultures, but of course, Indigenous peoples. And when we looked at their uh, understanding of the um, phenomena of fire on Earth, obviously, I mean, you know, Indigenous peoples like non Indigenous peoples have various different. Um, Ideas, and you know, they—they—they're not. Uh, one can't, strictly speaking, um, assume that you know they're, they're all in line, as it were, with one particular ideology. But yeah. nonetheless, we find there is in in an inherent understanding that fire is uh, to be um, understood as an integral part of life on Earth, and that that requires us to have a degree of humility in our um actions in in regard of its presence
0: yeah i mean just the image of um, having orange red skies and o3 maybe in the atmosphere uh and he- strong fires is it's just for humans for our day to day existence we just don't have enough capacity and not that we have evolved to you know think on these huge timeline. So yeah, it's it's just easier for us probably to push that away and just worry about what's going on. But uh what I realized, I mean the myth of stealing fire, Prometheus, it is so interesting that that myth of Prometheus and you know the gods. I mean mm. we started from fire and now you know we are probably are becoming you know those gods which we were dreaming uh, in a way that now we actually want to terraform the earth itself so it's funny that the word is terraforming but it's now projecting it back so you know geoengineering has been talked about and uh, so so we are now coming out of the earth and the fire was maybe the first thing, as you were mentioning, you know, which is so crucial, the first piece of technology, you know, if you want to call it. And now where we are probably, you know, it's maybe it's technical hubris of our species, mostly because we always think that, um, yeah, that's the technology which will, you know, transcend us to the godhood. And but always, what happened in the end is that we just then deal with the problem which has been created by the technology, and then create some something else. So probably geoengineering would be another thing which would just destroy the core. Possibly because any any historian, any design scientist, someone who is who understand a bit of complex system, generally they are not that positive
1: about no. our,
0: our understanding. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> no. um,
1: yeah, I mean, I've, I've spoken about, um, the, the, I, I guess you could call it the arrogance of some, uh, to assume that we are the gods now, because the idea that we, I mean, to look at where that comes from, um, there was a, and actually in the, the movie Prometheus, and it was by no means incidental, um, there was a line, obviously, um, so say delivered by a, you know, the sort of Elon Musk, as it were, of the movie, uh, this uh, tech um, guru uh, of whom uh, the corporation enabled the exploration that the, the, the film revolves around. Um, uh, he said, you know, we are the gods now. We aren't the gods now. What we are is a species that, having evolved from fire, and actually with you know within um, a period that was actually extremely geologically and climatically stable, the Holocene, uh, that being a period when yes you know we had a few V7 eruptions, um, and a, at some periods when we had quite a, we had a, a flutter as it were of V6 eruptions, of which the consequence was. Volcanic winters, amongst other things, that uh, pushed our species to the limit. But we haven't really, uh, you know, we haven't really had much in the way of, as it were, environmental hardship as such, or at least not in a sustained context, in that when uh, major environmental events have happened, they have either been quite brief. And when I say brief, I'm speaking to a period of decades or at most a few hundred years, as opposed to a geological epoch, and they have generally been quite uh, patchy in their expression. In that, there have been various places that, for for one or another reason, have been rather less exposed than have others. This is a very different ball game that we find ourselves in now. In that, the scale of the climatic transition, if we're to look at the best and the worst case scenarios, we are looking at a scenario that from a geological perspective, is taking us out of the stability of the Holocene. And it is taking us into a period in which uh, events that really push our species to its limits are becoming much more frequent, much more severe. And of course, simultaneously to that, we as a species are many times more populous. And the, the upshot of that is that whereas in times ancient past, we were nomadic. Principally, we were nomadic because, you know, we've obviously only been settling uh, for a mere 10,000 years. So within and of our um, history as a species, you know, it's, it's it's really a brief window of time that we have been, uh, you know, um, engaged in this thing called civilization. And now we're at a, at a point at which we've built all of these settlements of which a very many are going to be and they are, they're, they're right in the firing line of major environmental events. And of course, you know, the thing about these events, and this is really sort of pointing to some of the truths, as it were, in some of the ancient mythologies, we all know of the, the plagues of Egypt, and we all know of the narratives um, that essentially suggest that, you know, one event was followed by another, by another, and it all came back to human sin. Now, I'm not a religious person, but what I will say is that there are some truths within and of these ancient myths. And the reason for that, or the reason they're speaking to truths, is that there are indeed correlations between certain classes of environmental events. So, for example, if you look back at the history of plagues, particularly the bubonic plague, um, it becomes very much evident that there are correlations with shifts in climate. And of course, the reason for that is it's actually very logical. It is because as and when uh, the likes of droughts are created, it displaces species, which in then in turn displaces the pathogens that those species carry. And when those species come into contact with humans, outbreaks, a pandemic, which of course are worsened in a drought or in a period of environmental um, crisis, because of course, we as a species are more vulnerable in that when we are physiologically um you know, uh, we are starved, as it were, if we're we're in a famine, or if, you know, for any reason, our immune system is suppressed, then we are more likely to succumb to the pandemic. So we tend to see couplings of environmental crises, pandemics, and all sorts of other things. It it, it doesn't rain, but it pours. And we're now in an era in which, you know, these things are all converging, they're all coming to a head. Um, Fire is right at the heart of that, in that you know as we speak there are not thousands of now uh, dead tinder dry ready to combust trees out there there are tens of millions and this has been known for some time and this is why for example the extreme fires in california of the last few years were anticipated they weren't a surprise event not not to the fire science community it was there it was written it was very clear in the data we are going to get extreme fires. And what the data is now saying, we are going to get more extreme fires and the fires are not going to be contained just to California. They're going to be breaking out elsewhere. But of course, as I said, it never rains, but it pours because the fires in and of themselves, they then burn off the biomass, which in turn increases the probability of flooding and of debris falls and of various other uh, geological failings. And so, you know, we have that going on. Then of course, we have the fact that the Greenland and the Antarctic uh, the polar ice caps are melting uh, at a faster rate than some had anticipated. I say some because, again, in the worst case trajectories, the rates that we're now seeing were, um, were there. They were they were uh, forecast within those trajectories. And so sea levels are rising. And, you know, this is all going on. And this is the big wake up call. This is the thing that says, you know what? Humans, you have so much capacity, but you are not the gods of this planet there are forces that are innumerably bigger than our you, And actually, I mean, it's all relative because, of course, you know, if we were to sort of step back from planet Earth and we were to step out into the universe, we find there are yet bigger, bigger events. Um, I mean, of which one, of course, would be a solar storm. You know, how many individuals have pondered <laughs> the fact that at any point, uh, you know, and we would have relatively little notice, we might, goodness me, have at most what, twenty four hours if that notice of a major solar storm event which if it struck at the precisely right time and I mean we'd be incredibly unfortunate for this to happen but if it' struck at just the right time you know when the planet is in uh, a particular orbit to the sun at a particular proximity on a particular axis and in a particular season then you might not be looking at, you know, what we've seen in the past, Where, for example, in Quebec, there was a solar storm that knocked out a number of communications because, of course, it, it created, amongst other things, electrical surges. You could see half the planet, or possibly even more, have their entire electrical uh, structure, their, their uh, internet, their comms, their utilities, bang, knocked out. Yeah. And, of course, with that, you could simultaneously have firestorms because what happens when you have electrical surges on power cables well you get you get sparks what what happens when sparks hit <clears throat> in dry season you get fires so you know these are these are the realities in that we don't know how bad things might get but we certainly know that things are getting a lot more challenging than they have been sure. and so now sure. is the time that we fundamentally as a species have a choice we either accept we're not the gods And these are the things that we actually need to confront or, you know, we try and build big walls and we try and kid ourselves, that, you know, we can we can uh, insulate ourselves from uh, forces that are immeasurably greater than are we.
0: Yeah, I mean, this one freaks me out the most, the solar flare, definitely. And this is not even something which could. Like it's it has happened 60 million years ago or something. This thing has happened hundred years ago. And it's a very, as you said, it's, it's a blip. Like 10,000 years is a blip. And even 500 years is literally just a blip since maybe industrial revolution. And yeah, yeah, the the prospect of solar flare and all of our communication, all of our data in the cloud, hypothetically, yeah. uh, and, and electri- uh, electronic grid, I, yeah, I just don't understand that if like, I don't understand at this point, to be very honest, that if we are just keep on going and keep on reproducing and keep on consuming, I mean, where, and, and without actually realizing and paying respect to the place we are and the power, as you said, exists like outside of just our tiny echo egos. I mean, how, where, where do you think it would lead? I mean, is there any other place than just driving us off the cliff? If there is, I mean, it's it would be great to find out. But just just a very simple introspection would reveal well, think,
1: that. You know, what, what I'm seeing at the moment is actually, again, I mean, history does repeat itself. It really, you know, we like to imagine that ours is the capacity to build utopia, to build afresh. It's that's an ongoing narrative in human culture. But when you look back, you find that the same patterns, the same scenarios, they manifest time and again. And, you know, we see it right now. And that before I was speaking about the fact that the pandemic has brought out both the absolute best and the absolute worst in many people. And in that sense, we're seeing a bifurcation of society. Now, this isn't just happening ethically, and morally, in terms of um, the way in which people choose to respond, in that some people are saying, well, you know, uh, mine is the responsibility to help my fellow man as much as I can, and obviously, as and where they can to help the environment. At the other end of the spectrum, we have those people that are completely out for themselves, and that have absolutely no concern for their fellow man. And then we have people that are you know, kind of in between. Um, but actually, in business, you know when you look at what's happening in the business world right now, in response to the pandemic, we have they that have acknowledged that um, if they want to uh, basically ensure that they're going to have a business twenty four months from now, they need to reevaluate what are the new risks, what are the new opportunities, and what is my capacity, what is my business's capacity to adapt to this? And on the one hand, we're seeing people that are being very proactive and they are um, essentially developing new facets to their business in order that they adapt to this new scenario uh, while also retaining the flexibility so that, you know, whichever way this swings at the end of it, they've got a bit of leeway. At the other end of the spectrum, we find they of whom it is the assumption that this uh, situation will come to a close within... Uh, a controllable period. I uh, you know, um it will be not the circumstances that will set the agenda, but it will be us. We will be able to say, well, in the fashion of Trump, we'll have shut this down by X date, you know, we'll have shut this down by Christmas or whenever it might be. And that after that, there's just the assumption they can just go back. They can just go back to how things were. Um, and so, you know, be it in business or personally, we all have a choice. You know, we can all Either accept, well, you know, there are there are things that are shifting now, and we can take it upon ourselves to look at that shift and to see how we might adapt. Or, you know, we can be belligerent and we can say, "Nope, I'm not, I'm not going to accept change, um, and I'm just going to stick here in the mud. I'm, I'm just going to, you know, carry on doing what I was doing." Um, and so, I think it's a mixed picture. And although I'm using the analogy of you know business persons or individuals. This is happening at a global scale in the, on the one hand, we have nations that are uh you know doing their best to try and adapt to the circumstance we have the opposite and it's a very very mixed picture um and so my concern now is well it's firstly you know which of these two which of these two narratives is going to win out you know because ultimately yeah. um we're in a, we're in a tug of war and I'm not absolutely sure, you know, who, who is going to win that war right now. Um, and also the fact that we don't know what's going to come up behind this. You know, we've only got, we can only speculate and we could get lucky. I mean, you know, it could be that, Hey, you know, 12 months from now, um, we're out of the pandemic. We've got a vaccine. It's been developed, it's been deployed and we're all, you know, rolling along with ease or On the other hand, you know, to again, look at the complexity of Earth systems, the fact that there are lower emissions, of course, means that there are, amongst other things, fewer clouds and fewer aeroplane trails and so forth. And that in turn has affected the atmosphere. And one of the things, again, I read actually last week was that we're now seeing meteorologists and climatologists in turn warn that the probability of flooding will be higher this year. And so now we've got to think about, well, you know, what's going to happen if not only are we dealing with a pandemic, but we're dealing with higher than higher than, um, you know, average flooding in this year. And it's yeah, it's it's incredibly complex. It's incredibly messy. And so uh, that is why I'm I'm not pessimistic, but I very much I very much walk straight down the line and that I don't allow myself to get to optimistic i don't allow myself to get too, um you know down in the mouth i just look at all this stuff going on and think well you know how are we going to try and walk the middle line here and expose ourselves not to the bias which is so easy when you know you shut down your blinkers and you're not you're not looking at, at the full picture
0: yeah i mean probably maybe loss of human story i mean i don't see any human story right now there's just as as you can see physical and also you know mental factions exist and technocrat mm-hmm. highly rational uh and 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 the science which is turning a bit towards again this ideological religious omnipotent kind of uh solution providers uh, i mean th- th- of course all of us and the different characters has should have a seat on the table, but shouldn't, I mean, it looks like that they are the only ones at this point who have the seat on the table. And mm-hmm. we, we, maybe it's, it's another, just a side effect of, you know, we, you can say divorcing ourselves from older myths and the confusions. And we actually maybe divorced, some part of that self which connects us to our own uh story and uh also to the capacity we have and how dangerous we can be and by looking at it we can actually understand that what acts can impact and connects us to the nature and you know again the of course i'm, I'm not talking from a religious point of view but again these limiting modalities where you can't talk about self and soul or whatever the vocabulary is. Uh, mm. It's, it's again damaging in a way that w- as a human, you just don't know at this point, you know, as as a storyteller or or, or how our language has developed that who really we are. I mean, just uh, tons of social overwhelm, anxiety for, for general people where they just, you know, compare yourself with 7 billion people all the time, try to have these echo chambers. And that's just the dominant na- narrative rather than aligning ourselves with our environment and the forces and accepting it that, I mean, t- or, or, or or letting go, you know, maybe this epidemic you see, like there's an epidemic of control also um, around, mm. around.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, things are very tribal. You know, yeah. we we split back into tribes, which is quite interesting because if you look to our origin, I mean, and if you look to indigenous communities of whom the relations with the wider world are in effect severed. So, if you you know were to look at some of the more remote tribes of, for example, the Amazon, you actually find there's a very coherent sense of identity, and they're generally speaking, although they are typically sort of ally colonialism portrayed as having a very simplistic view of life. Uh, If you look to the mythologies and if you look to the belief systems of these indigenous peoples, they're actually very sophisticated. They're they're highly layered. They exhibit a profound understanding of the systemic nature of life. Um, Structurally, they all have, well, certainly all they that I have studied, have correlations. Um, There are certain narratives that come up time and again. Such, for example, as the idea that in the possession of knowledge, um, the acquisition not only of the control of fire, but of of knowledge more generally, there comes a price, a price. And it's a price that is eternal and it is a price that is great. And in that sense, the, the myths and, of course, many world religions, their attempt essentially is to imbue a sense of responsibility, a sense of the responsibility that comes with knowledge. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, of course, we have societies that are highly, uh, they are very diversified, they are very big, typically, and they have fractured. And it does seem they are fracturing yet more in that not, you know, not merely is it the case that we have polarised societies now, but within and of those polarised societies, we have even more fracturing. So, for example, if we looked at the sustainability community, on the one hand, we have they that believe that yes, we should, and this is my belief as it were, this is my way of operating, that um think it imperative that we have everyone at the table and we listen to everybody and we try to understand everybody's perspective, and we try and find the correlations we try and find the areas of contention, and we try and navigate a compromise, and in that sense, we recognize that there is inherent logic in the views of everyone because even they you know, that are actually typically portrayed as being anti-environment. Often they have an inherent logic. There's a reason why they think the way they do. Then at the other end of the spectrum, we have uh, what is actually a very bourgeoisie perspective and that we have they that imagine that there are, as it were, the truth keepers and that those individuals um, ought dictate what everyone else should do. And it tends to be a very dogmatic approach. So it tends to be uh, all about you shouldn't, you shouldn't fly, and you shouldn't own a car, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that. And that in itself is, it's a very insular approach, in that it tends not to actually accept that, you know, these issues are very complex. I mean, it's a very complex issue as to whether or not there is a rationale to fly or not. You know, I would argue that If it's for a trivial purpose or if you're flying a lot, then you should re-examine your your travel. You know, I'd I'd, I'd argue there is there is actually a rationale for that. But then again, uh, you know, if we all stop flying, there are profound and, and awful repercussions from that, be it that, you know, many loved ones would not get to see one another Cultures would become yet more insulated, yet more cut off. Uh, critical supplies for science and medicine and so forth would not be able to reach their destination in the, the time required in order for certain experiments and, and um, you know medical procedures and so forth to occur. So these things are really very complex. But the sustainability community, in and of itself, they're often portrayed as being a unit, as being a solid, um, you know, delineated. Group of people is incredibly fractured, and that uh, same story is now manifest across many facets of society, and it's causing problems. And as you say, we have no common story as a, as a species right now. I mean, ironically, you know, you could argue if you if you actually expand the timeline, and if you look at us uh, from an anthropological uh, perspective over you know not uh, mere years or tens of years or centuries, but over epochs then yes we absolutely have a story but right now there is a loss of story and that is playing out in many different ways and what it means is that there is um yes there's a lack or a confusion over identity there are disputes over who it is that we are what it is that we should be doing and I think the the question of of reconciling that is is incredibly difficult because of course the whole the concept of the internet the reason that many were so eager to create the internet and to develop this global net, this global communication platform was because the idea was, you know, it would make the world smaller and it would enable us to communicate with our fellow man and to exchange information en masse that supposedly would bring us together. It would supposedly make us more united. But actually when we look at the world today, and across the journey of you know, the, the, the um the period since the advent of going online, of the of the birth of the World Wide Web, that is not true. In that what has instead happened is that we've reconfigured wherein we're still every bit as tribal as we once were, but we've just we've just slightly moved uh you know the um parameters of of you know how those tribes are formed. So instead of necessarily being tribal within and of, our geographic space, either people that we're meeting or we would have been meeting day to day, we're now tribal with groups that we've met online or you know in some other um, digitally facilitated context, and it is an incredible mess. Um, there are some incredibly unfortunate things coming from it, and you know I think it is an extremely important area to research and to um, to try to gain understanding on. But you know from my perspective, I really don't have much of an idea, to be honest, as to how the Dickens, we actually do reconcile it because as is, you know, I think we're in a very, we're in a very bleak place.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, so, uh, I, can you hear me? yeah oh perfect yeah so I mean this this actually uh were you talking about environmentalism that how you know there's a bit of a separation in this moment movement where you know there's a purity of um you know staying with the um local solutions and minimum technology, but then there's some of the people who are maybe leading at some point they are like, well, you know what it's coming, we can't really uh, resist it, so probably be part of it, and you know, uh, just, you know, soften the edges of this issue. And uh, they are saying, okay, yes, you yeah, know, even relying on um, these big corporations uh, without it, the technology wouldn't, we, the type of technology which could be used to save probably uh, the environment it requires level of this hungry unlimited growth metropolis places so so there's a there's this conflict and then overall we we as as a human and our relationship with the environment we have an issue of at first separation which is just mm-hmm. like everywhere and then we are now trying at some point also reconcile ourselves with these ideas like animism but more not not more like fairy tale but more evolved maybe trying to be a bit more grounded that you know it's not about us and it's nothing to do with anthropocentrism. but the problem still and another another level on the top of it even though we are trying it it's still we do have the technology and it kind of makes us you know a bit powerful a bit omnis at, at at point so there's like a lot of issues uh, going on and on the top of uh, each other, and I, 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 I don't know what's the, what are, what is it our urge to understand complex system and then control it? Still, I mean,
1: well, I think you know if there is a positive, you know, often when I when I don't have an answer, the first place I look is to history, usually, and if we look back through. The history of the recorded history of humanity. What we know from that, and particularly this past several hundred years, is that we go through periods when, I mean, there's always a wrestle, there's always a wrestle between what is essentially the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, either haves and the have-nots. And that, well, I mean, it's certainly um, a problem that goes back as as far as the written record, although there are if we look to the Bronze Age, there were certain peoples um, that, if, if you like, had a more equitable society than we do today. In that they um, were they were better able to distribute wealth in a way that was fair. That said, that was typically happening when resources were abundant and the environment was in quite a stable, you know, relatively stable state. However, again, if we look to um, the East again, the the history of China, there were periods when China was relatively um, peaceful and and collaborative with its, um, you know, both within and of itself and with its immediate neighbours. And then there were, in contrast to that, there were periods of warfare. And essentially, there's been this sort of bouncing to and fro when, you know, we go through periods when we're getting along rather better, and then we, we go through periods when we're not. But I think if I do, if if there is a glimmer of hope in the current situation, is that if we were to look back to perhaps the closest proxy we have to now, which might perhaps be the 1300s or the 1600s, when Britain, and indeed around the world, but I'm I'm focusing on Britain because that's the period uh, historically that I tend to pay a bit more attention to with regard to this issue, um, there was extreme inequality and there were there there was a lot of conflict Um, particularly for example we look at the early 1600s we had essentially gone through a period in which of course having the discovery of America and if you like the age of adventure when Portugal and Spain and Britain and France and so forth were going out around the world they were claiming territories they were claiming the assets of um, peoples over which really technically I mean ethically they had no right but they They obviously uh, inflicted themselves on these other places and they took their assets. Um, They used that money, if there was a silver lining, they used that money to fuel the Renaissance and to fuel um, the golden age, as it were. And then after, you know, having done that, um, the 1600s came along in a period of great environmental hardship, uh, you know, extremes of heat, uh, hot weather, of droughts against extreme cold events, And of course, with that, the pandemics and so forth. Um, And history, you know, the the history makes apparent that society started to become more fragmented. British society was, you know, was yet further diverging. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of resentment. And of course, the Civil War occurred. Um, You know, the King, King Charles uh, came to uh, an end. And we tried to restructure Britain tried to restructure, and you know to what extent it did because of course you know having then revolted um you know, we sort of hmm. we then uh re embraced the the uh, inherent hierarchy, we embraced monarchy once more um but there, there was nonetheless this this breaking point at which society or rather they that had been disenfranchised said you know enough is enough, and we are going to. Um, use whatsoever means that are at our disposal to build a more equitable society um, and to challenge that, you know, which is unfair. And I think that that is happening now, although it's happening in a way that is less clear to uh, delineate than back in, in those times because, of course, we have got a more complex society we are living in a world, I mean, to an extent that was a globalized time in that we, you know, we were, we were traveling all over the world. We were, um, you know, bringing in goods and supplies from all over, all over, you know, the planet. And so it was in effect a, a globalized era then, but it's more so now. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, on the surface of it, 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 it can be quite hard to sort of decipher what's going on. But I do think there is a bit of an uprising. And I do think that as in the 1600s and back in the 1300s, it is coming in waves. It's not a one-off event. It's a series of events. And I think probably about, you know, maybe 70 years from now, we'll be able to, you know, obviously we'll probably be gone by then, but people will be able to look back and they'll be able to unravel what was going on and say, well, yes, we'd reached the tipping point and the system was set to reconfigure. And through a variety of process, it did. And these are some of the positives that came out from that. And so, you know, my, I guess my view is that, um, yeah, there are challenges, but there are signs that within and of that, there are probably some some much needed reconfigurations that are going to occur. But of course, in and of themselves, they're difficult processes. And, um, you know, they invariably involve, um, you know, some some fractions of the, community suffering or, um, you know, being exposed to a greater level of threat and and discomfort than is desirable.
0: Yeah, hopefully. I mean, as there are um, in our personal life, there, there are moments where you can, you know, face the challenge as a species. Hopefully we can face the challenge and transcend. And I'm sure maybe there are some ways how, you know, life is tested and, uh, yeah, either we perish or we, you know, transcend and be able to connect to our deeper wisdom, but okay. Now a little, little bit of a different topic. So you, uh, wrote about a fragment of our prophylic past, if I'm pronouncing mm-hmm. it correct. I mean, what is this? Yeah, I, I want to, uh,
1: pyrophilic, pyrophilic, it's pyrophilic. A word I'm
0: so okay. that
1: word pyrophilic is essentially you'll know of biophilia and you'll yep. know of biophilic so yep. biophilic is obviously relating to that which is um, embracing of, of nature or of the or of a concept of nature so pyrophilia is a word I've coined to essentially convey um, an acceptance of fire as a fundamental and integral aspect of the functioning of life on earth of of our world.
0: Okay. So, but this is, uh, is this the story which you were writing about the um, palm tree in Australia? I mean, I, I, I actually want to know about it. Is this the same thing I'm talking about?
1: Oh yeah. Um, well, that's actually relating to to myths. It wasn't me that was writing about the, the palm tree. It was um, David Bowman, who was one of the foremost fire ecologists on earth. So he uh, I can't even remember how many papers he's authored. It's something like, it's in excess of over 550 papers, books, and other publications. He is the oracle on fire ecology. Wow. And wow. one of the, uh, an interesting paper that he published with some peers a couple of years ago, interrogated the, um, the possibility that um, an Aboriginal tale of how the only native palm in Australia came to be in a certain place. And what they did is they decrypted, in effect, the mythological tale through the lens of fire ecology. Now, that is um, a general approach to mythology that has been building an interest of the past, well, it's now a couple of decades, wherein there are whole. Research teams that are, for example, looking for correlations between um, mythological accounts of geological and other environmental events and reality and and that actually has uses both from the perspective of understanding how ancient peoples perceived of their world but also in terms of trying to date the origin of mythological tales and therefore there's an inherent anthropological and wider research value to attempting to decrypt, is there, you know, is there a correlation? Um, that is something that I picked up on and that I followed through in the thesis and that I interrogated the origin of fire myths. And my theory, in fact, or well, my hypothesis, uh, because it's not proven, and indeed, it's such a complex um, field that is dealing with such ancient data, as it were, that um, it may never be proven. But my hypothesis is that the origin of fire myths, is born of real-world observation. And the reason for this is that when we look to the five myths about the world, of which there are, uh, are very many in different cultures, we find that like language, um, they have, for example, like the Indo-European language, they have common structures, they have commonalities in their narrative, they have common characteristics in terms of the um, attributes that are affiliated to key characters to you know key components of these myths and with relation to their discussions on fire certainly with respect to you mentioned Prometheus now of course Prometheus was um said to have stolen fire from uh, and knowledge of fire from Athena and uh, Hephaestus and of course the, the other character in that trio was Zeus. the uh, if you like the king the the, or the God of the gods, um, and looking at that that myth and, and tracing it back through to pre Socratic uh, times, both the poetry of Sappho and um, the Athenians and the the earlier groups that um, essentially explored and, and authored mythologies around that um, particular tale um, yeah there, there are there are similarities with the origin of fire myths of other cultures in India, in South America, and so forth. And because of the fact, you know, we know that these, these tales are very ancient, as I said, structurally, these myths and narratively, and in terms of meaning, these have commonalities, which if we were to apply the same principles as etymology, i.e. how and why language evolved as it did, we'd be looking at a common origin, we would be looking in order for there to be these um, similarities in structure and meaning and so forth, we'd be looking at a point of common origin which if we are to trace our known uh, or the known movements of humans as they spread out around the world and as these cultures formed and obviously we know a fair amount about the the origins or the, the date as it were of arrival of certain peoples in certain parts of the world, um, you know, suggest that these, these origin of fire myths have a, yeah, they have a common source um, or they have one of a limited number of common sources that predate the migration of these peoples and the evolution of their cultures. Because, of course, in that process, as with language, there are modifications that are made. So, for example, one of the things I've identified is that though, for example, different species um, are referred to or, you know, obviously different names um and different um, incarnations of objects of which the, the purpose is the same, for example, a torch or a fennel, a fennel stick, um, but the the um, the incarnation, if you like, is modified to be bespoke to that culture, i.e. to the sort of tools or names or, uh, you know, sort of things that were, um, that were, had, had evolved within that particular community over time. And... If that is true, um, as in, you know, as in the case, if if there is truth in this hypothesis, as with Bowman's um, hypothesis, um, or indeed it's now proven as theory, um, that the origin of the palm tree, the native Australian palm tree was in fact, does in fact correlate with the Aboriginal myth uh, story, then, you know, that has profound implications because what that is saying is that these these mythologies, they are more than just tall tales. They are, in effect, um, what you might think of as a system of communication, which a little like a scientific paper today is structured in such a way that it's, it's conveying important knowledge, it's, it's conveying uh, information that is, um, you know, fundamental to these persons, these, these communities, understanding of the world. And Certainly, again, in order, to, in order that we, you know, to, to add another layer of understanding to um, where I'm heading with this, different um, cultures, obviously, they not merely adapt their language, so the actual wording that they use. And I've, I've spoken a bit to the etymology, actually, in, in the thesis discussion. But, of course, they also use symbolism. They use uh, symbolism in terms of iconography, they use symbolism in terms of numerology. And if we look at it on that level, not just in terms of the narrative and the meaning and so forth, but we find that there are, again, there are structures, there are symbols that are coming up time and time and time again. And so in that context, mythology itself has potentially, it has an evolutionary story that if understood, enables us to understand how human culture and how human belief systems actually evolved. And with that, I mean, if we were to bring in a couple of the other theorists on this, I've spoken at length about the work of a chap called Terence Turner. Now, Terence Turner will be known amongst they that um, are very attuned to um, Indigenous rights, to human rights and to the efforts to protect um, Indigenous communities and their interests around the world, because he um, he essentially was extremely active in in that regard for many years and and undertook some very notable works. But Terence Turner was actually an anthropologist that essentially carried on the work of Levi Strauss and actually within and of the same region in the in the Amazonia, Amazonian Amazonian forest um, the Amazon forest and he added another layer to Strauss's work in that where Strauss had only really looked at the structure of mythology. Terence Turner actually really got into the meaning. And so he took, as it were, the vessel um, of understanding that little bit forward. He actually spent a number of decades in the Amazonian forests um, with particular communities to decrypt their their mythologies. And in his work, essentially what he's done, and this, again, is is a point that I've picked up on and discussed, he essentially emphasised how, I mean, not in so many words, but he essentially spoke to the fact that understanding a mythology until relatively recently was very much tainted by colonialism and by the elitist global North narrative, the idea that, um, other peoples are primitive, other peoples, um, are savage to, to use the Levi Straussian term. Um, and, you know, Turner's work really, um, his, his book came out as well worth the read. Um, it came out just a couple of years ago. I actually would have. I, I edited it in latterly into the thesis, actually, um, because originally the book had come out so very, very recently. To when I, it, well, it essentially went to print pretty much at the time I was submitting. So I, I hadn't really had time to um, to craft that that um, discussion with any um, with any depth. So I actually that was that was one of the edits I made. I actually bumped in Turner um, latterly um, before the final submission. Um, but, you know, he, he built on this theme and I too have, have spoken to the fact that, you know, when we think to mythology, when we think also to myths, to legends, and to really all forms of communication of knowledge of other peoples, of indigenous peoples and of, of ancient peoples, we really need to be aware of our prejudices. We really need to be aware that actually, um, just because we don't understand, uh, the way in which these, these, um these narratives are structured just because the symbolism is alien to us, just because the, um, the the relations that these mythologies have to others in that, you know, when you look to the mythologies of the ancient world and indeed of um, extant indigenous peoples, it's the mythologies, they act, they're not, they're not stand alone. You know, you can think of them almost like a soap opera in that they are related to an ongoing narrative. In order to really understand one mythology, you need to, be un, you need to read and you need to know the narratives of they that relate to it. And of course, the, the bigger that matrix of, of um, mythologies that you then understand, and in turn, the, the better your understanding of the, the characters and the symbols within and of those mythologies, the better your understanding of the language that is in use and the better your understanding of the meaning, and that I think is really important. And some people may, you know, wonder, well, why on earth would someone that was really trying to um, to challenge the co- the contemporary um, approach to fire, i the idea that you know we need to we need to control it, we need to eradicate it, we need to you know remove it from. Um, as much of of our um you know uh, wild landscapes and so forth as possible I, you know the, the common sort of uh, narrative of the the popular media why would one what, why would one dig into these ancient mythologies? why would one dig into the indigenous um beliefs and the reason is very simple if we don't understand how other people understand uh fire if we don't uh, actually recognize how our own ideologies differentiate from they of other from others and over time, then ours is a very limited understanding of how and why we came to be where we are in that, you know, we have to compare, we have to see where the differentials are in order to really get to the roots of how we arrived at the place that we're at. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's an, it's a piece within a piece. Um, and, you know, I, um, I don't know quite, you know, where I will take the mythology's discussion, but certainly, in terms of how much there is to research, um, you know, I've since reviewed my own work. In fact, you know, I've I've been back through my own thesis, and I've I've written various notes and and observed things that I actually hadn't observed in the original authorship, and so I've already built it out. And you know, I would hope that there are others. I know, certainly, as I said, Bowman has already looked at this. But I would hope that about the world, there are many others that are really starting to cotton on to the fact that, you know, there is is this rich information, there is this structured information, there is this complexity um, narrative that is very much clear in in these mythologies and in the belief systems to which they relate, that have in effect been hidden to the greater part of the Western world, to the global North, for a not insignificant amount of time because we simply hadn't looked we simply hadn't asked the question well you know could it be that actually uh you know the use for example of certain species such as the pine you know references to pine cones or to oaks or to other uh, these are i'm speaking to well fire adapted species you know could it be that their use is not incidental that this is not uh you know a, a mere um You know, accident that they have chosen to reference these particular species in a particular way, Um, and instead be the fact that, you know, these peoples really understood their landscape, they really understood these species, they understood the interplay between fire and, um, you know, and the natural world, they understood the symbiosis, and they conveyed it in these rich tapestries of um, mythologies and other narratives that are all there, all there. And all along, just waiting for us to take a look and in doing so to, as I said, to understand ourselves better, but also to understand them better, to understand our ancestors better and to understand the other peoples with whom we share the planet better.
0: Beautiful. I a hundred percent, I, I couldn't agree more to what you are saying, um, well, I'm aware of the time. Is there anything else you want to add as in what are you doing now? And if people maybe want to uh, look at some of the other work or media, are there any specific places?
1: Um, yeah, well, I, um, I decided to, I'd actually build a website for the thesis. Um, the reason being that I wanted to make it as accessible as possible. And so although it will be bumped into the, you know, the same old usual suspects, the research goats and the academia and so mm. forth. Um, It's I've built its own standalone site. Um, on there there is the text. I haven't actually added in the images yet, which is principally a download issue. It's because obviously the, the more uh, you know the more I build out the site with imagery and so forth, the potentially slower the download is and I don't want to be creating a cumbersome site. So it's just the text at the moment, but it's all there. Um, and you can find that if you go to Panarch- Panarchic Codex. The site will also have, it's got an ongoing interview series that I've started, which is to further build out some of the conversations that I started in the thesis, as well as to bring awareness to some of the characters who I've discussed in their work. Because, um, as I said, you know, I reference Bowman, but there are many others who are, um, you know, their works are extraordinary. and fascinating and, and I, I really would hope that a very many beyond the fire sciences and fire ecology community would start to read them because I think there's immense value uh, to be found there. And there will also be a podcast series that's starting next month which essentially I'm migrating the thesis into audio and that is again to make it get more accessible. I'd say that are hard of sight or um, you know that are reliant on audio uh, media alone And there will be updates on the work. Um, Unfortunately, obviously, because the lockdown, any field research or indeed even lab research at the moment is, uh, it too is on lockdown because, you know, can't physically get out there and do it. So the emphasis is very much on publishing, but it's all there. Um, And there's also the social media has just started going. So that's just starting to roll for anyone uh, that is interested. And, you know, I hope that... um, I mean, a lot of the work, you know, it is, it is highly speculative um, and it is working with, um, you know, ideas that are, that are very novel, but of course, you know, one of the primary um, underlying reasons for that is, is because, you know, I want to provoke, I want to bring people's attention to possibilities that either weren't on the radar or were ignored for one or another reason. And you know, more generally, you know, what I've been doing is I've been working transdisciplinary. So, you know, you, you'll have heard in that conversation, I was, you know, jumping between different subjects. Um, You know, what I would say to today that are, that are working in this space is when you're, um you know, thinking to not really how you structure your work, and it's, it's quite a task to work transdisciplinary, because of course, you've got to well, invariably you you know you've got to have a wider literary and general awareness of, of your um domain because you know you're working with not one but you're working with many subjects. But also one of the big challenges I think not merely for researchers in the particular areas that I'm working, but more generally in the transdisciplinary space, is that it is quite difficult to find places that are really that really hit the sweet spot for um for reaching the audiences that you want to, to reach you know in that yes you you have lots of journals that are dedicated to this or to that discipline and within and of the academic world they tend to be quite narrow in their um content uh the discussions and actually within and of their audiences and of course in theory you know you could write a million and one papers that goes into a million and one journals and you know populate um all of them but actually you know we all have time limitations and so another of the reasons that I actually built a site to host this work was because I was aware that at the moment there actually wasn't that sweet spot there wasn't somewhere that really hit the nail on the head of um you know where I was looking to to um take this this research and so I thought you know what I'll build an open access site we'll see how it goes and actually I've had a pretty good response but um yeah feedback would be good you know if if um, folks jump on and they um you know find something that's particularly interesting or if there's something that you know is a bit niggly then yeah let let me know as i said the image with the, the issue with the images is 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 one of it's one of download speeds and i might be able to mitigate that through through some other some other fashion but um yeah feedback feedback would be great and um i hope i hope that anyone who does take the time to drop by Uh, at least finds it interesting even if they don't agree with all of the points that are made
0: (laughs) (laughs) i will put all the links for sure underneath the podcast um melissa thank you so much i mean this uh definitely was one of the best hours i've had for for last week so thanks a lot for the conversation
1: oh it's been a pleasure as always
0: same thank you
1: take care bye for now
0: bye people